0: Hello, and welcome back to Trying the Trojan War. Today, we are in what is possibly the most thematically rich and dense portion of the entire Iliad. Um, Patroclus is dead, folks. We watched him die in the last section. Admittedly, it was a bit of a complex death. First, Apollo sort of stunned him, took him out of the fight, knocked his armor off, apparently. Then, poor Euphorbus manages to, like, get one shot in on Patroclus, And then Hector comes in for the killing blow, brags a little bit, and now Patroclus is officially dead. Well, we got a lot of fallout as a consequence of this. Um, because of Patroclus' death, we're going to see Achilles rejoin the fight. We're going to see him absolutely swear vengeance against Hector, swearing off his rage against Agamemnon. And all hell is going to break loose as a consequence, especially for Hector. Um... Now, Hector isn't really a terribly important part of this section. Like, this is definitely, you know, Achilles striding onto the stage and taking, you know, credit for everything that is going on here. Um, At long last, he is going to assert himself as the huge, most important hero on the Greek side and absolutely live up to his name as both a warrior and as a bearer of terrible rage. Um, But I want to talk about Hector first. Because A, his role is largely confined to the early part of this section, and B, there's a surprising amount to say about Hector and his role at this point. Again, we're in thematically rich territory here, so rather than try and deal with this chronologically as we have with a lot of our discussions so far, today I want to focus predominantly on the themes, theme by theme. And the first theme that I want to talk about is Hector, his honor, and his hubris, because this is where Hector kind of falls apart. We've talked about Hector quite a bit at this point, especially back in book six, where I was very keen to say that Hector is probably one of the most upstanding Greek heroes, perhaps the standard by which we should be judging all of the other Greek heroes, largely because Hector kind of has a reverse storyline in comparison to most of the other Greek heroes here. Um, Where Achilles is kind of an asshole for the very beginning of the text, and kind of persists in being an asshole through most of the rest of the text, Hector starts as a really decent guy. We get to see straight up, up close and personal, um, exactly how decent he is. We see that his reasons for fighting this war are good ones. He is defending his homeland. He is defending his family. Even if he does have a bit of a death wish because he doesn't want to see his family die, he still at the same time harbors this kind of totally useless hope in his breast that his son will grow up and ultimately outshine him, even though we know that this isn't the case. We see from the beginning that Hector has accepted his fate recognizes that he is going to die and has come to terms with this in some way, something that Achilles doesn't do until this section. But here we see Hector kind of overstepping himself multiple times, engaged in this act of hubris, this standing up and making more of himself than he actually is. Now the first hint that we see that this is the case is, as we talked about last time, where he insults Patroclus and totally misses the mark of what's going on here. Um, As we stressed, Hector kind of gets this whole insult thing on Patroclus. Patroclus shoots back, dude, you showed up third, and you have no right to gloat. If things had been more fair, if Apollo hadn't taken me out, we would have had a fight, and you might not have ended up on top. Um, What's more, but. Hector assumes that Achilles dispatched Patroclus to kill Hector when, in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Achilles specifically told Patroclus not to go all the way to the walls of Troy, which is exactly the problem that Patroclus kind of ran himself into. Hector assumes that Achilles is getting Patroclus to do his dirty work for him, and instead, Patroclus has made the mistake entirely under his own steam. But the second big problem with what Hector has done here is that Hector then strips the armor off of Patroclus. Like this is one of the first actions in Iliad 17 and I told you a long time ago that this whole you know who has the armor business is a huge plot point in the Iliad. Here we see that actually develop. Like way back when Diomedes was beating the crap out of people and Athena was empowering him back in book five I stressed you know it's important. Uh, Diomedes wants to take Aeneas' armor to prove that he overcame Aeneas, that he is the hero that took out the great hero on the Trojan side. You mount this on your wall, you brag to all your friends, I'm the guy who killed Aeneas, that's a really impressive accomplishment. Your armor is effectively a trophy in this respect. But remember, Hector didn't win this armor fairly on a number of levels. One, because, again, Hector really didn't do the major work involved in getting the kill here. Uh, But also because, remember, Patroclus is wearing Achilles' armor. The whole plan here was that Patroclus was going to go out dressed as Achilles and, as a consequence, inspire the Greeks and terrify the Trojans, which is totally what happened. Patroclus shows up. The Greeks are all suddenly roused to battle. They, The Trojans are terrified. The Trojans rout. The Greeks pursue them. They are pushed all the way back to the walls, at which point Patroclus is like beating his head against the walls themselves, and Apollo is knocking him off. But it's Achilles's armor that Patroclus is wearing. Hector, even if he did single-handedly slay Patroclus, has not earned the right to wear Achilles's armor, the armor that Patroclus was himself wearing at this point. So notice that the text also kind of emphasizes this, that there's something wrong, something unnatural about the fact that Hector can wear this armor and does wear this armor. And it is really quick that Hector puts this on. Like, this is also symbolic for Hector and for the Trojans. The fact that Hector is wearing Achilles' armor is this sort of promise to the Trojans that everything is well for the Trojans, that the gods are behind them, which, again, as we've seen, the gods have been. Zeus has been supporting the Trojans for quite a while now, but specifically so we could get to this point and now the gods are very much turning on the Trojans. Um, But notice, this is line about line 186 or so in book 17, um, Hector sort of retreats a little bit. Like, we have this huge fight going on over Patroclus' body. Like, Menelaus kills Euphorbus, who grows a bit of a spine. And is like, what? I killed him. I totally have credit. Menelaus is like, dude, you are a wimp. And Euphorbus is like, no, I'm not. Menelaus is like, uh, you're dead. Um, so anyway, Ajax and some of the other Greek heroes push the Trojans back a little bit, the Trojans regroup, and here we have this passage. His helmet flashed gold as he turned and ran out of the battle. He soon caught his comrades. They were not far, and he was running hard as they carried Achilles' gear back to Troy. There, on the edge of war's horrors, he, Hector, changed armor. He gave his own to be carried back to the city by his fighting men, and he put on the inhuman gear of Peleus' son Achilles that the gods of heaven had given to his father and he to his son when he had grown old in them, as his son would not. Zeus saw him from his seat high in the clouds as he buckled on Achilles' armor. Shaking his head, the god said to himself, Unhappy man, you have no thought of death, yet death is close. You were putting on the immortal armor of a man who makes you and many others tremble. You killed his comrade, gentle and strong, and you violated the order of things when you took the armor from his shoulders and head. And I will grant you strength and recompense for this, and Dromache will never welcome you home wearing the glorious armor of Achilles. Note that Zeus weighs in himself here and stresses, this is unnatural. You violated the order of things. You took the armor from someone who shouldn't have been wearing it, and thus claim a victory that you have not earned. Hector, by wearing Achilles' armor, has kind of put himself squarely in the crosshairs of Achilles. Achilles is going to come after Hector not just to avenge Patroclus, though let's not undersell how important that is, but also because Hector is flaunting Achilles' own armor in front of Achilles'. Achilles is pissed about this for a number of reasons. And notice that the armor itself has quite the lineage here. It's stressed that Hector is wearing armor that was given to Peleus by the gods. And we'll learn a little bit later in book 18, I believe, that Achilles kind of like gives us this glimpse that Peleus apparently had been given the armor by the gods as a wedding gift when he married Thetis. So this armor has some deep symbolism attached to it. It is the armor that Patroclus died in. It is the armor that Achilles rightfully wears. It is the armor that Peleus wore before Achilles, and it's the armor that represents Peleus' marriage to Thetis and the birth of Achilles entirely. Now, this whole business is itself kind of complicated and rooted in hubris too. Notice that Thetis has a lot of passages here where she regrets having married Uh, Peleus, Achilles' father, because he is mortal, because the griefs of mortals do not belong to the gods, and by intertwining themselves in these mortal affairs, the gods themselves suffer. Thetis grieves, Thetis suffers a great deal more because Her life is mixed in with that of Peleus and with that of Achilles. She grieves because Achilles grieves. She mourns because Achilles will die. She mourns because Peleus will die. So this armor, on the one hand, is this blessed gift from the gods. It is something that belongs to Peleus despite the fact that Peleus doesn't earn it. The same way that Peleus doesn't earn Vetus, the way that he's sort of out of his depth there. But at the same time, this is a curse, this armor represents this sort of doomed coupling between mortals and gods. This movement of Peleus out from beyond the mortal sort of limitations. Mortals fraternizing with gods typically is bad news in the Greek world. Um, we see Achilles' life is not a happy one. like It's about to get even more unhappy. Never mind the whole fight that he had with Agamemnon where he stresses how much he's been dishonored and weeps over his dishonoring. Now things are even worse for Achilles. His fusion of God and man is even more fraught, even more broken here. He suffers unreasonably because of his strange situation, because of his sort of being caught between these two worlds. Um, And the fact that Hector carries this armor Wears it gladly, is yet another indication that he is out of place here. He is totally out of place. He has sort of forcibly intervened in lives who he did not really have any business messing with. Remember, Hector has been afraid of Achilles since the very beginning of this war. Uh, multiple times we're told that like the entire Trojan strategy while Achilles was on the battlefield was to basically just sit behind the walls and taught the Greeks and like shoot them with arrows and stuff. Like they refuse to do actual fighting in any really sustained length. It's only because Achilles is out of the war that we see this much dynamism, this much fighting, this much, you know, Trojan versus Greek action. So again, Hector doesn't belong here. Hector has absolutely overextended himself in multiple ways, symbolically, thematically, and just from sheer force of arms. Again, it's really hard to get a beat on exactly how strong Hector is here. So many times when he goes up against Greek heroes, he gets kind of flattened. He's been flattened by Ajax several times over the course of this book, and Ajax is an inferior hero to Achilles. Patroclus himself, and we have no reason to disbelieve him, seeing as there are his dying words and he seems to have a great deal of clarity there, Patroclus himself says that he could take Hector if the fight was fair. So Hector, much as he is the greatest Trojan hero, as much as he is manslaying Hector, and as much as he does claim credit for killing Patroclus, kinda isn't all that powerful when it comes to squaring off against Greek heroes and seeing who wins. Like, as weird as this is to say, Paris has taken out more significant Greek heroes than Hector has at this point. Like, even if we give Hector credit for Patroclus, remember that Paris took both Diomedes and that random healer guy out of the fight with his arrows. Now that's kind of ugly and, you know, we have questions about how honorable it is to like shoot heroes at at heroes rather than fighting them, you know, face to face with spears and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, if anything, that just shines a light on how Hector has kind of not lived up to his own standards here. Hector is fighting a desperate battle. He knows he's fighting a desperate battle. He knows that he's outgunned by the Greeks. He knows that Troy will fall. But here, he seems to act like it doesn't matter. And while some of that is reasonable, again, Hector has seen and has noticed and has claimed multiple times at this point that Zeus and the other gods are behind him, that the Trojans can't fail as long as Zeus is on their side, and he's right about that. He doesn't understand how limited Zeus's support actually is, that here the gods are abandoning him. And as much as he is strengthened, as much as Zeus even tells us, you know, I will grant you strength, but he does so in recompense for the fact that he will never come home to Andromache. He will never see Andromache again wearing the armor of Achilles. Hector, in taking this step, has gone one step beyond what his power and his fate could reasonably bear. And as a consequence, by putting on the armor of Achilles, Hector does grant strength for himself and for the army. But he's also dooming himself. This is hubris. This is probably the most concrete example of hubris in this entire text. Like, it is emphasized six ways from Sunday here. Hector has no business being in this armor, and while wearing it will make him stronger, will make him more powerful, will grant him this brief sort of burst of strength in the for in the coming pages, it's also going to doom him. He is dead the minute he puts that armor on. Now, we should also emphasize that Hector's not making great choices at this point as well. Um, in book 18, we get a fairly important moment where Hector is like hanging out with the other Trojan elders and leaders, and we get a fairly grim uh, set of advice from Polynimus, which this is not the first time that Hector and Polynimus have sort of squared off here. Um, that, you know, Polynimus has offered advice and Hector tends to shoot it down. Polymus typically being the voice of reason and caution here, where Hector tends to instead argue for, you know, going forward and doing great deeds and fighting and being, you know, violent. Um, But here, it's especially noteworthy because, spoilers, this is going to come up again. Um, Now notice, first off, we get a strange Hector three times scene here. Um, like, I've kind of emphasized, especially in the Patroclus chapter, that every time you hear that sort of pattern, that, you know, three times Patroclus charges forth over the walls, and three times Apollo rebuffed him. Three times Patroclus, like, charges into the fray and slays nine men, but on the fourth time Apollo whacks him. And that's it for Patroclus. Like, all the way back to Diomedes trying to, you know, get Aeneas' armor by charging at Apollo. We've seen this over and over again. Um, here we get a very important Hector three times section. Um, namely, in book 18, uh, during the sort of fray over Patroclus's body, um, while Ajax and the various Greek heroes have sort of rallied around it to protect it, before Achilles sort of shows up and, and like changes the whole situation on the battlefield. We have this passage around line 165 on page 360. Three times Priam's resplendent son, meaning Hector, took hold of the corpse's heels and tried to drag it off, bawling commands to his men. Three times the two Ajaxes put their heads down, charged, and beat him back. Unshaken, Hector sidestepped, cut ahead, or held his ground with a shout, but never yielded an inch. Notice Like we saw with Diomedes when he's butting his head against Apollo, and when Patroclus is doing the same thing, butting his head against Apollo. Here, this is the first time we've seen a Trojan get charged with this same sort of unreasonable fate here. Um, Hector cannot advance. Hector immediately runs headlong into the Ajaxes, and the Ajaxes are not giving ground here. Hector is, to some degree, a fool to try, even empowered by the gods as he is. But even more importantly, it's not long after this. Like literally a page later, this is where Achilles shows up. Like Achilles doesn't even have armor at this point. He stands in front of the trench and he shouts. And we once again get this sort of refrain. Three times Achilles shouted from the trench, we're told, around 245. Three times the Trojans and their Confederates staggered and reeled. Twelve of their best lost in the crush of chariots and spears. This is the turning point. When Achilles shows up, suddenly he is not just fighting fate, but he is the voice of fate itself. Where Hector and Diomedes and Patroclus all have this pattern where it's three times they advance and then three times are pushed back. Instead, here we have Achilles shows up, shouts three times, and the Trojans are done. They immediately retreat. They are like panicking, fleeing from battle because naked Achilles, like Achilles without armor, without a weapon, just is standing in a trench being like, dude, I'm here. And they're like, fuck, we're out. Um, So notice this pattern is giving us this indication that fate is hanging over these characters. And now Hector is the one who's pushing his luck here. Um, But what's worse is, again, this advice that he gets from Polydemus. Not long after Achilles does his three shouts from the trench, literally the next page, page 363, we get this speech from Politimus around line 272. Take a good look around, my friends. My advice is to return to the city and not wait for daylight on the plain by the ships. We are far from our wall. As long as this man raged against Agamemnon, the Greeks were easier to fight against. I, too, was glad when I spent the night by the ships, hoping we would capture their upswept hulls. That hope has given way to a terrible fear of Peleus' swift son. He is a violent man and will not be content to fight on the plain where Greeks and Trojans engage in combat. It is for our city he will fight and our wives. Notice that Politimus is basically counseling, okay, so Achilles is back on the field. It's time to go back to plan A. Hide behind the walls and know that Achilles cannot actually get past them. But Hector... Hector's gotten a little big for his britches here. He's enjoyed the fighting. He's enjoyed, you know, having Zeus on his side and pushing the Greeks back towards the sea. So when Polytomus is saying, "Guys, we cannot support our camp by the ships," which remember ever since book 8, you know, the he- the Trojans and led by Hector have been encamped right next to the Greek ships, right outside that like hastily constructed wall that's now in ruins that the Greeks put up. Um, even the fight with Patroclus as much as it did push the Trojans all the way back to the wall, at this point they've advanced to that uh, like shipside encampment again. Um, you know the Greeks are trying to drag Patroclus back to their encampment, and the Trojans are following them every time that they retreat. Um, at this point, because Achilles has shouted, the Trojans themselves retreat, the Greeks do manage to retrieve the body of Patroclus at long last, and here are the Trojans saying, okay, so what's the plan? Do we stay here by the ships in the encampment that we built here, the sort of temporary setup on the other side of their defensive works, or do we go back to the wall because, as Polynomus points out, Achilles is back, it's a whole different ball game now. But Hector has gotten this far. He set one of the ships on fire, remember, right before Patroclus entered the field. So Hector's response is Polydamas. I don't like this talk about a retreat and holding up in the city. Aren't you sick of being penned inside our walls? People everywhere used to talk about how rich Priam's city was, all the gold, all the bronze. Now the great houses are empty, their heirlooms sold away to Phrygia, to Maonia, since Zeus is turned wrathful. But now, when the great god, son of Kronos, has vouchsafed me the glory of hemming the Greeks in beside the sea, now is no time for you to talk like a fool. Not a Trojan here will listen. I won't let them. Now hear this. All troops will mess tonight with guards posted and on general alert. If any of you are worried about your effects, you can hand them over for distribution. Better our men should have them than the Greeks. At first light, we strap on our armor and start fighting hard by the ships. If Achilles really has risen up again and wants to come out, he'll find it tough going. For I will be there. I, for one, am not retreating. Maybe he'll win, maybe I will. The war god doesn't care which one he kills. And notice that this sounds like the same sort of goading... You know, let's rev up the troops kind of speech that we've heard a lot of times from Hector or from Agamemnon or from Diomedes or from Menelaus. Like, a lot of heroes kind of use this sort of rhetoric, this sort of talk to get the troops riled up, and usually this is right before an advance happens. So, right as all the Trojans are like, I don't know if we want to stay here, Achilles is back, Hector launches into this speech and everyone is fortified. Okay, let's stay here, let's be ready to fight when dawn comes. But notice that the narrator straight up tells us, Thus Hector and the Trojans cheered, The fools, their wits dulled by Pallas Athena, Hector's poor counsel won all the applause, and not a man praised Politimus' good sense. Homer tells us who the right person is here. Politimus definitely has the right idea. It is time to retreat. Achilles is back on the field, and that is a whole different situation than we had. And notice, Hector assumes in his speech that the gods are still behind them. He emphasizes, when the great god, son of Cronus, is vouchsafed me the glory of hemming the Greeks in beside the sea, Zeus isn't on Hector's side anymore. That all changed as soon as Patroclus entered the fray. Like, we have seen temporary boosts from Zeus. Again, as soon as Hector puts on Achilles' armor, Zeus says, all right, I'm going to give you a little bit more empowerment, but it's only going to be for a little while. You're not going to make it home. Hector doesn't realize that the situation is more complicated than that. He is not in the same strong position now as or as he was back when Polymus first saw like the eagle with the snake. And he's like, dude, this means we're not going to actually get the ships. And Hector's like, Zeus is on our side. One omen is enough for me, thanks. No, you got to read the omens. Things are complicated, more complicated than they seem. Zeus was on your side, but Zeus was on your side because Achilles asked him to be. Now that Achilles is back in the fight, it's anyone's game here. And Hector is not equipped for this. So notice, this is perhaps the greatest moment of hubris for Hector, where he shoots down Polynomus' advice and wears Achilles' armor. And he will realize this right before he dies. He will realize that this was the moment of truth, that this was where he he had his sort of last opportunity to call it back, retreat to the city, and maybe survive longer than he would have otherwise. But as it is, sticking himself out in the fight like this thinking that he can somehow take Achilles with Zeus's help, even though Zeus is not on his side anymore, this is hubris. This is mistaking his place in the world. This is failing to realize his own limitations here. And this is not a mistake that Hector is going to recover from. We all know where this is going at this point. We know that this is just a matter of time for Hector. Um, But let's back up and look at one of the other major characters and themes that we're dealing with here. Um, Just as we talked about the armor and how that's connected to hubris and how that's connected to Hector's sort of lack of awareness of his own place, we should also emphasize what's going on with Patroclus just in general. Like the whole of Iliad 17 and for about half of book 18 as well, all of the fighting is over Patroclus's body. Like, some of it is really direct, like Menelaus fighting Euphorbus over Patroclus' body. Um, some of it is less direct, like we have numerous sort of contingents fighting back and forth and sort of retreating or advancing while Patroclus' body is sort of trying to be carried back to the Greek lines. Um, notice that it's a arduous fight. Like, the text, in fact, emphasizes this fairly strongly at that, um, Notice that we've had a lot of arduous fighting over the course of this tag. Like, Book 8 was, you know, all of those false starts, and Diomedes trying to, like, push Hector back and failing because Zeus kept, like, striking him with lightning, or striking the ground nearby him with lightning. Uh, we had Book 11, where Eris showed up, and all of the Greek heroes were taken out one by one by Paris's arrows or otherwise. Here, though, we get a different sort of character for this fighting. Uh, Like, if you look around line 375, um, on page 343 in book 17, we're told, So the battle burned on, but you would have thought the sun had gone out, and the moon too, for they fought in dark air. All the heroes clustered around Menoetius' slain son, meaning Patroclus. The rest of the Trojans and Greeks had their war, under the open sky and in brilliant sunlight, not a cloud on the horizon. They took breaks from the fighting, avoiding each other's groaning shafts, making some open space in battle. But those in the center suffered the agony of combat in darkness with merciless bronze. Notice, apparently the lights have gone out for the Patroclus battle. And it's kind of hard to say why. Like, everybody else seems to be out in this glorious sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. But here we have, you know, all of the really close, hard fighting for Patroclus. Hector versus the Ajaxes, and Menelaus, and Aeneas, you know, joining the fray. And it's apparently dark. Like, either the troops have kicked up a cloud of dust that is blotting out the sky, which would make sense. That's, you know, a fairly naturalistic way to explain it. Or something more weird and supernatural has taken place. Either way, this is a really bad omen for what's going on here. What's more, around uh, at the end of that stanza, around line nine or 393, we're told the day was passing. Men hacked slowly at each other in pain, the sweat from their labor coating their thighs and knees, pooling under their feet, spattering from their arms into their glazed eyes as the two armies fought over Achilles' surrogate. We even get an epic metaphor here. A tanner gives his men an ox side to stretch, having first drenched it in oil. They stand in a circle and pull at it until its moisture is squeezed out by all of their tugging, and the oil has a chance to penetrate the taut leather's pores. So too the tight circle of men on either side tugging at the corpse, the Trojans with high hopes of dragging it back to Ilion, the Greeks with their own hopes of getting it back to the ships. This battle sucks. Like, we've seen battles that have been terrible in various ways before, but they usually be, are terrible in a one-sided way. The Trojans are routing the Greeks. The Greeks are getting wounded by the Trojans. You know, it sucks for the Greeks, but Hector's having a ball. Like, he's like, Zeus is behind us. We should charge even farther. Here, it's just a stalemate. Just this dead, nasty fighting that is painful and arduous and slow that image of like the guys tugging at the leather. It's the slow, arduous process of tanning the leather, sort of introducing the oil into the pores painstakingly, like hours and hours of just mind numbing grind. That's what this battle is like as Homer is sort of presenting it to us. Nobody has a clear lead here. Nobody has a clear advantage and nobody is gaining ground. Um, as we're told right after this passage, this is around line 407, it was a savage fight and not even Ares or Athena in their most belligerent moods could have watched it with disdain. They, Even Ares and Athena are disgusted by this. They're frustrated by this. They recognize how painful and painstaking all of this is. And we're finally capped by this. Like to sort of put the the big you know, period on this whole thing, we're told around line 456 or so, um, when he saw the morning, the sun, or when he saw the mourning, namely Achilles and, uh, or Achilles' horses and automaton, because apparently Achilles' horses are weeping over Patroclus, don't question it, they're going to talk later, so, you know, these are apparently really cool horses, um, the son of Kronos himself felt pity. He shook his head and said to himself, Ah, why did we give you to Lord Peleus, to a mortal, while you are deathless and ageless? Was it so you could share men's pain? Nothing is more miserable than man of all that breathes and moves upon earth. Notice, this is kind of the real capstone to this whole discussion here, this whole where is man's place in the universe as far as the gods understand it. Like, we get it from the guy himself. I'd say straight from the horse's mouth, but that pun would be just too awful in this situation. Zeus tells us that nothing is more miserable than human beings, that man is the most miserable creature of all on earth, because he dies, and because he knows it, presumably. And here we see it. Like, here we get a clear snapshot of how awful this war actually is. Possibly the clearest snapshot we've gotten since that opening stanza telling us about the bodies rotting on the beach for birds and dogs, all according to Zeus's will. Here we have all of these heroes locked in this horrible fighting that goes on forever and is totally not glamorous and is just painstaking arduous work for the body of a person who everyone loved and cared about. Poor Patroclus dead on the battlefield, trying to be claimed by either the Greeks to bring him home and give him a decent burial, or for the Trojans so Hector can desecrate the body as he claims that he wants to do. Um, this is basically the worst that it's going to get in the Iliad. This is as ugly as this book is going to get. But that's what's emphasized here. Like, so much of this book has been ugly. I emphasize that. Way back when we were talking about books seven to nine, I emphasize that Homer is stressing how difficult this battle is, trying to sort of encapsulate in a few chapters how how it could be that nine years have gone by in this war and nobody has managed to gain ground. Nobody has managed to win this fight. Here we see the sort of other side of that. If the reason why nine years have gone by without anybody gaining ground is because there are all these false starts, these sorts of like efforts to conquer that are ultimately frustrated by the gods or by, you know, human equality. Here we see the other side of it. Sometimes it's just a friggin mess. Sometimes it's just a slog. War is hell, in short. Um, It is just all of these men fighting each other without sense, without reason, just beating the crap out of each other for something that on the one hand is extremely important to them and on the other hand is kind of not that important. Patroclus is dead and this is officially has nothing to do with the original causes of this war. We haven't seen Helen since book six and it's book 17 now. She's been completely impertinent to this entire discussion. Only once in all of these chapters has anyone even talked about how Helen was the cause of this war. And that was when the Trojans were like, hey, should we give her back? And they're like, no, because this isn't about her anymore. Um, This is what the war is about. As much as, you know, Patroclus' body wasn't even an issue nine years ago, this is the present issue. This is what keeps the war going. It's not about Helen. It's about vengeance. It's about, you know, Euphorbus trying to claim Patroclus' body and Menelaus killing Euphorbus and Hector trying to kill Menelaus. This is about Sarpedon going down to Patroclus and Glaucus telling Hector that he's a coward if he doesn't go forth and avenge the death of Sarpedon. You know, this is what the war is. Every single person who is fighting is now embroiled, stuck, in all of these petty little grudges, these personal grudges against a particular Trojan or all of the Trojans. So many times we have stopped this battle for two characters to realize that they have a pre-existing grudge against one another that has nothing to do with Helen. Like, think of Euphorbus himself. At the beginning of Book 17, when Menelaus confronts Euphorbus, Euphorbus tells Menelaus that Menelaus killed his brother Hyperinor. That's why Euphorbus challenges Menelaus, even though Menelaus is clearly the superior fighter. And Menelaus responds by being like, I don't care, he was a wimp, you're a wimp too, and so I kill you. Everyone has these stories at this point. And as much as the Trojan War is this big, stated battle about Helen and Troy, notice that we've seen over and over and over again that they have so little to do with the actual day-to-day fighting that is entirely motivated by personal vendettas, personal grudges, personal issues between the trojans and the greeks or the trojans and, you know, the gods or whoever. Even Hera tells us that she's not going to let it go be- until she sees Troy burn. That's because this isn't about Helen. War is never what it proposes to be about. It changes. And that change just draws everyone deeper and deeper and deeper into this morass, this swamp of conflicting, complicated motivations for a war that never seems to end. Just working and working, killing and killing, pointlessly, until something really dramatic changes the situation. Which brings us to rage. Because at the end of the day, all of this vengeance, all of this slugfest, all of this arduous fighting is accompanied by rage. Like we've been told again and again, and I've stressed over and over throughout this text, that rage and fate are intimately connected here. On the one hand, you know, Patroclus charges forward towards the Trojans and makes a mistake when he goes past killing Sarpedon. but we're told it's not his choice. Zeus put fury in his heart, and now Patroclus is operating according to passion instead of reason. Rage drives him. Not good sense. Likewise, here we see a huge metamorphosis in the way that Achilles' rage is manifesting in this text. Now, remember, on the one hand, it's rage that is keeping this war going. It's rage that causes Patroclus to, you know, go past his limits. It's rage that motivates Diomedes when he's trying to strip the body of Aeneas, despite the fact that Apollo is guarding it. It's rage that has driven Hector this far, and rage that pushes Hector into the battle again, even after, you know, he's been pushed back. But notice, over all of this has been a very strange form of rage namely Achilles' passive rage. As much as rage typically we understand in this text as motivating heroes to do great deeds or to get bloodthirsty or to violate their good sense and do something reckless or destructive, notice that Achilles has been doing nothing because of his rage. His rage has caused him to sit out the fight. And yet... We are also told that that rage is equally destructive, perhaps even more destructive than the rage that causes men to, you know, blindly charge into battle. This rage is why the Trojans feel comfortable coming out of their walls, and why the battle has been so bloody for as long as it has at this point. Not to mention the fact that Achilles, because of his rage, wished all this, asked Thetis to ask Zeus to let the Trojans win. And so every death since the beginning of this book is effectively on Achilles' head because Achilles literally asked the gods for it and literally requested that his mother hold Zeus accountable to making sure that this happened. So Achilles is sort of doubly responsible here. His absence causes all of this suffering for the Greeks, and his wish has caused even more suffering for Greeks and Trojans alike. But notice, here, everything changes for Achilles. And Achilles suspects this even before he gets the news. In book 18, right at the beginning, right around line 6... Uh, Achilles is looking out of the battlefield and says to himself, this looks bad. All these Greeks with their hair in the wind stampeding off the plane and back to the ships. God forbid that what my mother told me has now come true, that while I'm still alive, Trojan hands would steal the sunlight from the best of all the Myrmidons. Patroclus, Menoetius' brave son, is dead. Damn him. I told him only to repel the enemy fire from our ships and not to take on Hector in a fight. Like, nobody needs to tell Achilles that Patroclus is dead. He figures it out. He recognizes that the fighting has been so fierce for so long, and that the Greeks seem to be hard-pressed here. Clearly, Patroclus has fallen. The advance, the big push, has suddenly come to a stop. And now the Greeks are kind of being pushed back to the ships, step by step, slowly, as it may be. Now, when, in fact, Achilles gets the official news, when Antilochus shows up and says... Patroclus is down there fighting for his naked corpse. Hector has the armor. Notice that Achilles immediately goes into full grieving mode. Like, we've stressed here that these are emotional people, the Greeks. They are very quick to express their upset, their anger, their passions of various kinds. Grief takes over Achilles the way that rage had taken over him before. And he completely transforms here. Notice the way the language is presented. A mist of black grief enveloped Achilles. He is consumed by grief here. He scooped up fistfuls of sunburnt dust and poured it on his head, fouling his beautiful face. Black ash grimed his fine-spun cloak as he stretched his huge body out in the dust and lay there, tearing out his hair with his hands. The women, whom Achilles and Patroclus had taken in raids, ran shrieking out of the tent to be with Achilles, and they beat their breasts until their knees gave out beneath him. Antilochus, sobbing himself, stayed with Achilles and held his hands. He was groaning from the depths of his soul for fear he would lay open his own throat with steel. Like, Achilles immediately becomes full suicidal here. Um, his weeping is so intense that it sort of draws his entire household into it. All of the women who Achilles has captured in battle grieves for Patroclus and for Achilles as well. They all just grieve. And notice that Achilles, this is not superficial. This is not like he's just moved by his grief, moved by pity the same way he's moved by rage. Like, he, this changes the way he talks as well. Um, just a little while later, around line 83, uh, Thetis has come to Achilles. Thetis is also grieving at this point. He, she gives us this line, um, as long as he, Achilles, lives and sees the sunlight, he will be in pain and I cannot help him. Like, as much as Thetis grieves because she knows at this point that Achilles is doomed to die, that fate has transpired, that the death of Patroclus is setting this chain of events into motion that will end with Achilles himself dying at Paris' hand, she also grieves because, effectively, Achilles is lost to her now. The pain of this suffering is going to dominate Achilles for the rest of his life, and that's something that Thetis cannot connect to. Like, as much as Thetis is going to grieve for Achilles, she knows that it is just a matter of time before she, being immortal, gets over it. No pain, no suffering, no grief attaches to the gods permanently because they live too long. Grief is something that mortals do. Again, mortals, those wretched of creatures, as, you know, Zeus has told us, the most miserable of all of them. Mortals weep because mortals lose things, mortals die, but the gods never die, and the life of a mortal, no matter how important, is ultimately going to be just gone, in a flash, and forgotten just as quickly for the gods. Maybe in a hundred years, Thetis will still be upset about Achilles, but probably not in a thousand, or two thousand, or ten thousand When the entire Iron Age has passed and a whole new race of humans is on Earth, you can bet that Thetis will be over it. Well, She grieves now because Achilles is already out of her reach. There's nothing she can do at this point. He is doomed to die, and the rest of his life would be just as bad as dying at this point. He is in pain and will be in pain forevermore. But when she comes to Achilles to console him, to weep with him... Uh, to sort of grieve with him. Achilles gets really honest about his role in all this. Line 82, Achilles answered her, Mother, Zeus may have done all this for me, but how can I rejoice? My friend is dead, Patroclus, my dearest friend of all. I loved him, and I killed him. And the armor, Hector cut him down and took off his body, this heavy, splendid armor, beautiful to see, that the gods gave to Peleus as a gift on the day they put him to bed with a mortal. You should have stayed with the saltwater women, and Peleus should have married a mortal, but now it was also you would suffer pain for your ravaged son. You will never again welcome me home, since I no longer have the will to remain alive among men, not unless Hector loses his life on the point of my spear and pays for despoiling Menoetius' son. And Thetis in tears said to him, I won't have you with me for long, my child, if you say such things. Hector's death means yours.' Let's unpack this, because there's a lot going on here. First, notice Thetis comes to Achilles saying, Hey, plan's going great. The Trojans totally pressed the Greeks. Now they totally need you. And Achilles is like, this is small consolation. Patroclus is dead, and I killed him. Like, notice the attribution then. As much as Achilles is going to swear vengeance against Hector, and as much as Achilles is absolutely going to blame Hector for the death of Patroclus, notice that he at least partially blames himself. He is the one who murdered Patroclus. He is the one whose rage consumed him so much that he could not protect his best friend slash lover while he felt compelled to go to battle. Patroclus's compassion drove him to fight. Achilles' rage kept him from joining him. Now Patroclus is dead, and it is clearly Achilles' fault. And Achilles feels horrific remorse for this. Now notice that he also immediately dives into his discussion of the armor. So clearly this is also a factor here. I lost the armor to Hector is an important component of Achilles' grief here. He is emphasizing, you know, I lost the armor that you entrusted to me that was sacred to Peleus and sacred to your union. I not just failed my friend, I failed my mother and my father as well. Everyone has been failed by Achilles at this point. And notice that his sort of follow-up here is, I refuse to rest, I refuse to remain alive unless Hector loses his life on the point of my spear this is his sworn vengeance in short. Achilles absolutely now requires Hector's death and lives only for this reason. Uh, But notice that Thetis responds, that means you die too. Achilles, if he kills Hector, is doomed to die as well. That's apparently the key act that Achilles is responsible for and the act that will in fact doom him. But notice Achilles' response to this then let me die now. I was no help to him when he was killed out there. He died far from home, and he needed me to protect him. But now, since I'm not going home, and wasn't a light for Patroclus or any of the rest of my friends who have been beaten by Hector, but just squatted by my ships a dead weight on the earth, I stand alone in the whole Greek army when it comes to war, though some do speak better. Notice Achilles accepts it. He wishes that he had never been angry. He knows that that was a huge mistake on his part. He knows that Patroclus is dead because of his bad decisions here, but he also accepts, then let me die now. I would rather be dead than to continue to live without Patroclus. But notice that he also gets meditative here. I wish all strife could stop. Among gods and among men, and anger too. It sends sensible men into fits of temper. It drips down our throats, sweeter than honey, and mushrooms up in our bellies like smoke. Yes, the warlord Agamemnon angered me, but we'll let that be, no matter how it hurts, and conquer our pride, because we must. But I'm going now to find the man who destroyed my beloved Hector. Notice... Achilles gives us this snapshot of how anger has worked, how rage has worked throughout this entire text. It sends sensible men into fits of temper, drips down our throats sweeter than honey, and mushrooms up in our bellies like smoke. It's easy to become enraged. It was easy for him to become offended by Agamemnon and get catapulted into this completely insensible anger, this anger that refused to listen to the reasonable suggestions of Odysseus and Phoenix and Ajax back when they came and offered him Agamemnon's big gift to come back to the battle. Achilles ignored them at that time because the rage had consumed him. It went down sweet as honey, but now it has mushroomed up like smoke. Now it is poisoning him. Now he recognizes how destructive, how awful this was. The fact that his rage seemed to be a personal thing, seemed to be entirely about himself and no one else. But everything that Phoenix and Odysseus and Ajax and Hector have said about why they fight is now made suddenly clear to Achilles. Odysseus and Ajax and Phoenix all stressed, you fight for your comrades, for your friends. We are here to offer this to you, so please help us. And Achilles ignored them. Hector knew from the beginning the reason why he fought was to protect his family, to protect his homeland, to, to sort of stand up with his brothers in arms, his fellow soldiers, his friends, and to, you know, not dishonor himself before them. But for Achilles, honor was all about swag, all about getting what belonged to him, all about distinguishing himself in battle, and not about the reputation he had as a protector, as someone who helped the other heroes, the other troops, the other soldiers. Now he sees what that fighting was supposed to be all about. Patroclus is dead because he shirked his responsibility, because he chose not to fight, because he chose not to see what consequences his actions would have. But he goes on, As for my own fate, I'll accept it whenever it pleases Zeus and the other immortal gods to send it not even Heracles could escape his doom. The response to this, recognizing how destructive his anger, his rage actually was, leads him to an acceptance of his fate. Now that he sees that he is doomed to die killing Hector because that's the way that all this is supposed to go down, that if, in fact, there was an opportunity for him to leave the fighting, it would ultimately just doom Patroclus and he would be shirking his responsibility to him. Now he sees that he has totally failed as a friend and a soldier, and the only thing that can make any of this right, even in his own mind, is to kill Hector and do his job to avenge Patroclus, and therefore let him die. Life no longer looks desirable to Achilles. As much as he has been saying throughout this entire text, why should I keep fighting when when I am doomed to die for the sake of glory? What worth is glory in that case? Well, now Achilles knows. Now Achilles knows that glory was kind of just the smaller half of it. it wasn't all that important. What was important were the people he cared about. Patroclus specifically and now that Achilles has failed Patroclus, now that he has doomed Patroclus, now that Patroclus won't be in his life, well then what was the point of living anyway? The point of war is to protect the ones you care about, and if he's not doing that, then he's just consigning them over to oblivion, and the little bit of life he has won for himself won't be worthwhile. So he accepts his fate. He stops fighting against what everyone has been telling him all this time. Stops rejecting the, you know, limited life but great honor promise that Thedas has given him. He stops trying to escape from this situation and instead faces it head-on. Realizes why he is here, what he's supposed to be doing, and what exactly his role in all of this is. If Hector has overstepped himself, by absolutely for failing to acknowledge that he doesn't deserve Achilles' armor, that he can't actually stand toe-to-toe with Achilles, and that he should absolutely hide behind the walls at this point, Achilles has done the opposite. He, up until now, refused to do his job, refused to accept respons- the responsibility that he himself bore. You know, what Sarpedon said about how we're rich and powerful because we stand at the front lines, because we face the greatest danger, and because we our strength is greater than that of others. Achilles shirked his responsibility. Hector stepped too far. Achilles did not go far enough. Achilles ignored what he was supposed to be doing. Now he accepts it. Now he realizes his own responsibility. And in a way this is a kind of hubris too. Achilles thought he was more important than the rest of the Greek army, so much so that he wished all of those Greeks to suffer and die at the hands of Hector and the Trojans. That was hubris. And now he realizes how mistaken he was. Now that, that lightning bolt has hit him. Now he realizes how destructive it is, and he suffers because of the of the things that he's done. So he does what he's supposed to do. He doesn't have armor, and this is an important plot point in its own right. Remember that Hector is now wearing Achilles' armor, and Achilles has no armor of his own. But, even so, Iris tells him, you can just stand in front of the trench and, like, announce your presence, and that will be enough to, th- to drive the Trojans off. So he does, and they do. Patroclus' body is recovered because Achilles just shows up, shouts a few times, and that's the end of the story. But before we get on to the big passage about the shield of Achilles and everything that's going on there, I want to keep tracking this theme of rage and this sort of way that it informs how we understand Achilles and how he understands Achilles' transformation right now. Because on the one hand, you might very well say to yourself, so Achilles is done with rage. And the text supports this to some degree. We're told that as soon as, you know, like... uh, That shortly after he gets the armor, he stands up and he tells everybody, you know, shouts so that everyone on the the entire Greek lines can hear him, um, that he renounces his rage. Uh, Right around line 68 we're told, well son of Atreus, meaning Agamemnon, are either of us better off for this anger that has eaten our hearts away like acid, this bitter quarrel over a girl? Artemis should have shot her aboard my ship the day I pillaged Lurnissus and took her, meaning Briseis here, which Kind of sucks for Perseus that, you know, Achilles is not like, man, I wish I would have been dead the way that Helen does, but instead, man, I wish Perseus had been killed right off the bat because then we never would have had this fight. That very much sucks for Perseus, but we'll come back to her. Uh, Far fewer Greeks would have gone down in the dust under Trojan hands while I nursed my grudge. Hector and the Trojans are better off, but the Greeks, I think they will remember our quarrel forever. But we'll let all that be, no matter how it hurts, and conquer our pride because we must. I hereby end my anger. There is no need for me to rage relentlessly, but let's move quickly now to get our troops back into battle so I can confront the Trojans and test their will to bivouac among our ships. They will more likely be thankful to rest their knees at day's end if any of them gets out of this alive. So on the one hand, again, you would be right in thinking that Achilles has given up his rage. big grudge that he had with Agamemnon his sudden recognition that strife is only destructive goes down sweet like honey but balloons up like mud like smoke all of this has brought Achilles to this realization the rage isn't worth it the rage has hurt the people that I care about it's destroyed the Greek lines and I was wrong to ever have this so he says so I renounce my rage and Agamemnon is like cool I renounce my rage and they both you know Proceed with their lives. Agamemnon promises to give him all the swag that he promised way back when Odysseus gave him the offer of his tent. Briseis' return to Achilles, all is well. But notice, too, that while Achilles does renounce his rage, sort of recognizes, accepts his fate, and realizes how poorly he's done here. On the other hand, both Agamemnon and Achilles kind of dodge responsibility here. Notice... Agamemnon's response to Achilles's big speech here. Achilles says, I renounce my rage. He spoke and the Greeks cheered, were told. Peleus's great son had renounced his rage, and then the warlord Agamemnon spoke from where he sat without rising among them. Friends, Danaean heroes, servants of Ares, it is right to listen to one who stands to speak, and unseemly for even a skilled orator to interrupt him. Even if he could make himself heard above the crowd, he would be at a disadvantage. What I have to say is for the son of Peleus, but I want each one of you to mark my words. There is not a Greek here who has not said spiteful things about me, but I am not to blame. Zeus is, and fate, and the dark avenger who put a fit of madness on me in public that day I robbed Achilles of his prize." but what could I do? Gods decide everything. I've stressed multiple times at this point that this idea of rage is deeply connected to the Homeric and the Greek idea of fate. Here Agamemnon makes it really explicit, and yet for the first time I also really doubt it. Because this sounds a lot like Agamemnon is shirking his responsibility here. Like notice his his lead-up here is not, you know, hmm, I was carried away, I, w- I made a huge mistake here, but, you know, the, the gods put this rage into my heart, and therefore, you know, like, I acted in a way that was foolish and ridiculous. Like, that would have been correct, and would have sounded appropriately, you know, repentant. Agamemnon would come off as finally realizing how much he screwed up here. But instead, he leads, I am not to blame. Zeus is, and fate And the Dark Avenger, who put a fate of madness on me in public. What could I do? Gods decide everything, Agamemnon says." And as much as this is true, like Priam has said something very similar and it very much smacked of truth, a lot of evidence in this text has shown that, you know, all of the fighting, all of the decisions are very much mastered by the gods. Patroclus's rage was directly put into his heart by Zeus. Like, this is really obvious and clear, And yet, Agamemnon uses it as an excuse. I am not to blame. That's not necessarily true. As much as the Greeks do have this robust notion of fate, sort of governing all their actions, of the sort of very serious limitations on people's choices and free will and their power and strength, what we haven't seen is, and thus this is a complete excuse for culpability, Priam excuses Helen because of fate. Because Helen had very little to do in her own story here. But for Agamemnon to turn around and say, Oh, it wasn't me, it was fate the whole time! I couldn't help being angry! That sounds less honest. That sounds disingenuous. As much as I think Agamemnon is connecting these ideas, and he is right to connect these ideas, I think his presentation is wrong. It is out of sync with so much we've learned in this text. Yes, Patroclus had the fury put into him by Zeus, but Patroclus was complicit with this. Patroclus is at least partially to blame for what has happened to him. Yes, it is tragic. Yes, it is unfortunate. Yes, he was only doing the right thing, trying to protect his own and got a little carried away with himself, but that doesn't mean that he's totally blameless. He just gets what he deserves, or perhaps more than what he deserves. Whereas Agamemnon is like, I deserve nothing. No punishment. Agamemnon is totally blameless. Darn those gods for making me act like a crazy person. Even Achilles kind of gets at this a little bit better. Notice they make this big sacrifice here like Agamemnon promises to give all the swag and Achilles is like dude I don't care about the swag one way or the other and Agamemnon's like but seriously the swag and Achilles is like dude give me the swag or don't give me the swag maybe let's wait until after I've killed Hector because that's kind of a really pressing important thing for me right now and Agamemnon's like fine but I'm at least going to give you Briseis back and even gives us this like big swearing you know I swear I have not touched Briseis Um, I never slept with her or anything. I returned her to Achilles. Like, I don't even know what's going on in this situation. Like, if you want to, you know, turn up the misogyny meter, go ahead for this passage. I'm not going to fight it, because, like, more than anywhere else, we get this very big vibe, like, Briseis was only valuable to Achilles because Agamemnon did not sleep with her. Like, give me a break here. But anyway, they do the sacrifice. They slash the boar's throat, and Achilles stands up and says... Father Zeus, great is the blindness you send to men, else Atreus' son never would have roused my rage or insisted on leading the girl away against my will. Somehow it has pleased Zeus that many Greeks should die. Now go to your meal so we can join battle. Where Agamemnon is shirking his responsibility, where Agamemnon is like, I totally wasn't to blame, Zeus totally was, notice that Achilles doesn't take the same tack here. Achilles notices and has said that rage went down sweet and came up nasty. But he doesn't excuse himself in saying so. He's basically saying, I accepted this rage. I personally took it in. I made the mistake and I am responsible for it. I killed Patroclus. Here, he does give Agamemnon a little bit more wiggle room. Great is the blindness you sent to men. Else, Atreus's son never would have roused my rage or insisted on leading the girl away. We are both moved by Zeus. Zeus has manipulated both of us by putting rage in our hearts. Agamemnon and Achilles, both somewhat blameworthy, both also victimized by the gods. But notice that Achilles also takes it to the next step. Somehow it has pleased Zeus that many Greeks should die. All of this, all the way back to Achilles and Agamemnon's feud, even before Achilles asked Thetis to ask Zeus to go kill a bunch of Greeks and let the Trojans win for a while, all of that was apparently part of the plan. All the way back to, you know if Iliad 1, that will Zeus's will be done, Yeah even though feuding here was part of Zeus's will, was part of the big plan here. There is a cosmic order of things that Achilles acknowledges here, something that even Agamemnon is not quite willing to do, turning it into just, you know, Zeus being the jerk, and like Ate, the goddess who, you know, Hera manipulated, like, Zeus using Ate's blindness to cover it over Zeus to make sure that Heracles didn't end up being king, and then everybody's mad about it. Like, it's emphasized by Agamemnon that he is not to blame. He is to be excused. It is, is the blindness that Agamemnon draws attention to, where Achilles draws attention instead not to blame one way or the other, but instead to this being Zeus's will. And I want to sort of just let that sit for a moment. Zeus is supposedly the god of order, the god who arranges the universe. He is supposedly benevolent. Menelaus has called out to him multiple times, you should be protecting me because you are the god of hospitality, the god who enforces justice, the god who makes sure that right is ultimately triumphant. And yet, we're told here, Achilles sort of recognizes Zeus is way less clear-cut than that. The order of the universe may just be awful and destructive for reasons we cannot comprehend or explain. The Greeks' notion of fate is not necessarily a good fate. It is not necessarily everything will turn out all right in the end, the way that Christians believe. This is a fate that can occasionally be really destructive, can end whole generations of human beings for stupid, idiotic reasons. And we don't even see what those reasons are. Somehow, the mind of Zeus had decided that Achilles and Agamemnon should both be enraged at each other, should both enter into this feud, which will in turn cost the lives of countless Greeks and Trojans, leave their bodies to rot on the beach for dogs and birds to eat. This is the plan. This is what Zeus wants. The why, we cannot say. We do not know. Because on the other hand, we've we've seen that Sarpedon was sacred to Zeus, that Zeus didn't want him to die, and yet Zeus also was subservient to the fate decreed for him. Was that fate Zeus's idea, or were there powers beyond him? Is Zeus just enforcing fate's will, or is he in fact the arbiter? It's hard to say the Greeks don't have a systematic understanding of this, but what they do recognize and what informs every Greek myth, every Greek epic, everything we read of the Greeks in this class, and quite a bit of the stuff beyond that, may very well be one of the foundational concepts of all Western literature and Western culture in general, is this idea that fate is indifferent to us, is somehow so much greater than us, somehow somehow so far beyond us that all we can do is just be victimized by it and the best we can do the best thing that every greek writer sort of commends to us is to accept that fate accept it the way that hector accepted it back in book six in the way that achilles now accepts it because as we're told at the very end of this section in iliad 19 The horses, Xanthus, actually talks to Achilles. Like, Achilles gets his spear together, gets armed. The goddess Athena shows up and, like, pours, you know, magic god food down down into his stomach. And then, like, Achilles is ready to go. He's ready to kick some Hector butt. He's going to kill some Trojans until he manages to get Hector and manages to avenge the death of Patroclus. And we're told, the horses turn around and say to him, This time we will save you, mighty Achilles, this time, but your hour is dear. We are not to blame, but a great god and strong fate. Nor was it slowness or slackness on our part that allowed the Trojans to despoil Patroclus. No, the best of gods, fair-haired Leto's son, killed him in the front lines and gave Hector the glory. As for us, we could outrun the west wind, which men say is the swiftest, but it is your destiny to be overpowered by a mortal the God. Xanthus said this, then the fury stopped his voice, and Achilles greatly troubled, answered him, "I don't need you to prophesy my death, Xanthus. I know in my bones I will die here, far from my father and mother. Still, I won't stop until I have made the Trojans sick of war. And with a cry he drove his horses to the front. Achilles has finally made the mature move here. He has finally accepted his fate. He has given up his rage, renounced it, renounced his feud with Agamemnon, and accepted his fate. And yet, we should also notice that this too is rage. As much as I stressed like you could definitely take this as Achilles renounces his rage, everything is better now, you know, now he is soberly looking into the future, seeing what is awaiting him. Remember that what he has decided upon is to kill Hector. His rationality is now aligned with his grief and his passion and his fury. And importantly, we're shown this as well. Right before that passage that I read where, you know, Achilles announces, I hereby renounce my rage, I hereby end my anger, and the narrator tells us that the son of Peleus had had renounced his rage, literally two pages before, at the very beginning of Iliad 19, Achilles is given the armor of Hephaestus. Like, Thetis goes to Hephaestus, asks for a new suit of armor for Achilles because he can't go into battle naked, and his armor is currently being worn by Hector, who doesn't deserve it. And the armor comes back to Achilles, and Achilles looks at it, and we're told, this is around line 19 in Iliad 19, she spoke, and when she set the armor down before Achilles, all the metalwork clattered and chimed. The Myrmidons shuddered, and to a man could not bear to look at it. But Achilles, when he saw it, felt his rage seep deeper into his bones and his lids narrowed and lowered over eyes that glared like a white hot steel flame. Achilles hasn't renounced his rage. It's not gone. Achilles is no longer, is like not freed from his rage. The gods have not like liberated him from it. No, his rage has changed. It's gotten deeper, more powerful. It is now aligned with his good sense instead of opposed to it, It is not overtaking his senses, but instead fueling his might, making him stronger, nastier, meaner. And we'll see that this is complicated. Like Achilles is going off to battle. You better believe that he's going to be battling like a bat out of hell. He's going to be terrified. All of those various heroes we've talked about who have had a good day, you know, Diomedes back in Book 5, or Agamemnon at the beginning of Book 11, you know, Hector at various times throughout that passage, or, you know, here and there, like Idomeneus getting stronger, the Ajaxes, or whoever, this will hold not a candle up to Achilles when he is having his good day when he is powered by his rage and by the gods, when everything is aligned and finally he can just tear his way through the Trojan ranks. We will see that rage firsthand. Don't you forget it. But notice that this is a different kind of rage now. Not a rage that paralyzes or a rage that turns him against his friends and his his family, that turns him against his own senses and his better judgment, but a rage informed by his better judgment that now empowers everything that he does, makes him stronger and scarier, even more terrifying. Which brings us to the sheep. Like again, I wanted to hit this thematically this time, not chronologically, so we've been skipping around a lot over these three books. What I want to dwell on as sort of the closing discussion here in this lecture is the armor that Hephaestus makes for Achilles. Because everybody talks about the armor. It's a huge deal. Like here we are at this climactic moment. Achilles has just realized that Patroclus is dead. You know, they've successfully gotten the body back. And right in the middle of this we get a four-page long digression out of nowhere about this really awesome shield especially and the rest of the armor that Hephaestus makes for Achilles. Theta says Achilles is unarmed Could you make him a new set of armor? And the face is like, sure, no problem. And immediately makes the most beautiful armor that any human has ever worn. This, like, magic super awesome armor that is apparently really protective and also just breathtakingly gorgeous to look at. And we get this painstaking detail of what is especially on the shield. And a lot of scholars have debated, what does it mean? What does it mean that this shield has, you know the stars and the sky and the heavens that it has these two cities one at peace where there are marriages and murders taking place and one at war where there are you know battles and contracts being made what about the field what about the vineyard what about the gods depicted on the shield what about the cattle and the dancing and the sheep in the pasture like what is the deal with all of this stuff on the shield and I've yet to find a truly like comprehensive description that really just answers all the questions that either I or my students have about like why is the shield so important what is the big deal about the shield but if anything what i find as the most compelling argument what i find is my own sort of interpretation of what the shield means what the deal is here remember first of all that this is a shield it's function is to protect achilles he will carry it into battle and he will have this huge like elaborate picture of all of this stuff on his shield as the thing that he that everyone sees first when people throw spears at him he's going to raise this image and it's going to deflect the shield so this image protects achilles And protects him well, I should mention. Like, this is badass armor. Like, it is carefully wrought by Hephaestus. It's, like, five layers thick with three layers of the rim. And, like, the armor is pliant, but it's also really strong. And when Achilles puts it on, he notices that he can, like, run faster in this armor than he could normally without it, which just further, like, makes this whole thing confusing and complicated. Um, But notice that... What is on the shield represents kind of everything about the Greek way of life. Like this is comprehensive and notice that it's not just like like it even seems kind of totally at odds with itself. You know here is the peaceful town with where the marriages are taking place and we're like oh okay so we have like one town at peace and one town at war but Homer emphasizes, yeah, the town of peace is having all these marriages and there's all this feasting and, you know, the bride and the groom celebrating, but it's also got murders and, like, people are signing contracts to pay blood money for the murder that has been committed here. Like, this is not just, you know, some idyllic utopian city. We're not seeing this sort of, like, dual vision of, like, the good town and the bad town. No, these are towns sort of embodying and depicting the entirety of Greek life with all of its complexity and sort of weirdness and good and evil sort of mixed in with one another. Like we see a town where there are happy things happening and where there are bad things happening, where people are, you know, grieving and where people are celebrating. We see a town where, yeah, they're fighting over it. And there are armies encamped outside of it. It's kind of hard not to think of Troy at this particular moment, looking at that part of the of the passage of the shield. But at the same time, you know, they're coming to, they're having the same debates that the Trojans are. Are we going to settle? Are we going to, like, divide up the spoils rather than be sacked? Um, and in addition to these two cities, if we wanted to sort of, like, stop it there and be like, okay, so we got city number one being this, and city number two being this, we get this further description. Farmland and vineyards and you know, the gods being sacrificed to and cattle and sheep pastures and dancing circles and and then like the rim is apparently the ocean itself. Like, as far as the Greeks are concerned, the entire world is on this shield. All the good, all the bad, all the beautiful and all the ugly, all the celebrations and all of the grieving, all of this is on the shield. And my best understanding of why is that this is a reminder to Achilles. Achilles forgot about context. This whole story started and has proceeded because Achilles basically narrowed the world down to one point, namely himself. Forgot that his actions had bigger consequences. And now he is not only realized that his actions have consequences, that what he does is in fact going to affect other people, that Patroclus is dead because he's decided to sit out the fight nursing his own honor, nursing his own ego. But also on the flip side, it is that same society that protects Achilles. It is that same world, all these communities and cities, that keeps Achilles himself safe. You know, this is what Sarpedon told us back in book 12. Achilles gets to enjoy wealth and honor and glory and all of this swag and all of these beautiful women because he does his part. Because he fights in the center of the battle where the fighting is strongest and most dangerous. Because he is willing to risk his life the way Sarpedon risked his life and died doing so. Because of this, Achilles gets really badass armor that will protect him, that will keep him safe, that will make him even more capable of fighting in those ugly situations. Achilles protects them and they protect him. It is reciprocal. No one is alone in this fight. Even when Achilles says that I am alone in this fight, he's relapsing, forgetting exactly how much his community means to him. This is what The world is supposed to look like for the Greeks this is why wars can be justified to the Greeks for the same reasons that Hector showed us because you protect your family and because they support you because that's what all of this is all about the things that Achilles wanted by getting out of the war by shirking his responsibilities by just sailing home he can't have them unless he fights And because he has them, he can fight, and fight well, and fight better. It's one and the same thing. Achilles now has his priorities in order. He now fights for the right reasons. And because of that, people will fight for him as well. Because of that, people will glorify his name, and he will be remembered. As he correctly points out, the Greeks will not forget the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles. The Greeks will not forget that day that the entire world got turned upside down and everybody got out of place, and Achilles practiced his hubris and Agamemnon practiced his, ultimately leading to Hector practicing his and falling apart in doing so. Achilles now knows his place, and his place is behind the shield of his community. And his place is in front of that shield, fighting for his community. Both are true. Next time, we see the fighting go down. We see Achilles finally join the fray. We see him at his absolute best and strongest. And we see some of the most brutal fighting passages that Homer will yet show us. Pay attention to the way that Achilles acts now that his transformation has taken place. See how rage and fate inform the things that are going on, but also see where Achilles' rage is getting the better of him again. Because... It's not just fixed at this point. Achilles is still Achilles. His rage is still causing him to do things that may not exactly be the best for him or for those around him. So keep a lookout for that. Next time we read books 20 to 23 and we will finally see Achilles square off with Hector and the big final climactic conflict and face-off that we've been anticipating this whole book. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.